Chapter 8, Welcome to the Ordinary. Here's a quote from G.K. Chesterton from his book, Orthodoxy. But perhaps God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. Is it possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon? It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. And this from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 10 through 14. I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may find eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear or revere Him. And this quote from George Eliot from his book, Middle March. The growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts, and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been, is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and not in unvisited tombs. Fearing Ordinary An observer of our culture might guess that we believe nothing is worse than being ordinary. They would look at the way we worship youth and Photoshop our models. They would see our avoidance of and aversion to long-term responsibility. They would see our celebration of leisure and luxury, our promotion of delicacies, and our obsession with celebrity. They might even notice a common undercurrent in our desire for, quote, meaningful work. Everybody wants a vocation that is extraordinary, special, significant, and perpetually satisfying. They want life to be amazing. Although this may seem like wanting to suck out all the marrow of life, YOLO and all that, it turns out that living this way will suck the marrow out of you. I increasingly encounter people plagued by a constant fear of missing out, also known as FOMO. They fear that somewhere something extraordinary is passing them by. In our time, the worldly heart is often driven by fear of being trapped in an ordinary, monotonous life. Roles and responsibilities seem like traps, like cages that threaten to keep us from opportunities for pleasure, recognition, or anything extraordinary. They will bind us to duties like monogamy, marriage, and children, and virtues like thrift and contentment. The fact is, our desire for leisure, delicacy, excitement, variety, drama, and really anything worthy of social media don't match up with anything real about human life. Real human life is ordinary. It is primarily made up of rules, rhythms, responsibilities, and repetitions, which I call the four R's. Everything we do today has been done before, and we will do it again tomorrow. We will sleep, wake, shower, eat, work, dress, although probably not in that order. In the end, it's these ordinary things done competently, faithfully, and joyfully that make up a life worth celebrating. 
And it is these things that we must embrace in such a way that we find in them a life worth living. Real spiritual substance has to learn to embrace the ordinary, to welcome it. There is no escape from the ordinary. This is true even for the hedonist who goes out and follows his visceral desires for pleasure. Sensual pleasures don't last. They can't fill even a day because they are decreasingly satisfied by repetition. They require time to recharge their intensity. It doesn't feel good to eat right after you've eaten. It doesn't feel good for someone to stroke your arm for two hours. The ancient Greeks called this the hedonistic paradox. Yet the sensual or visceral pleasures are the only pleasures the flesh knows, and they are increasingly becoming some of the only pleasures known to modern man. The difference is that now we can broadcast them on social media and get additional pleasure and recognition from how extraordinary we appear. But the pleasures of drink, food, sex, shopping, naps, power tools, hobbies, and so on diminish us when we treat them like more than they're meant to be. And they end up making our lives smaller, burning up much of our potential. It turns out our worldly desire for the mythical, extraordinary life, as seen on Snap, Tweet, Gram, Book, has turned our picture of reality upside down. It has confused our understanding of what makes up a life of substance and has twisted our understanding about how humans find happiness. In fact, all this chasing after the extraordinary and pleasurable through worldly means is making us nothing but typical and miserable. The very things we avoid, God, family, work, celebration, tradition, church, service, worship, conventional friendships, etc., are the labors of love that bring the fulfillment for which we were created. Don't take my word for it. Did you know that one How to Be Happy book has outsold all others every year for the past 50 years? What if I told you it had done this for the last thousand years? What about 3,000? Since the Bible is the best-selling book of all time, and in virtually every individual year, and since one of its books is a happiness manual, that book is the best-selling happiness manual of all time. Ironically, even most Christians think it is the most depressing book in the Bible. Well, besides Lamentations. The title should give that one away. The book is Ecclesiastes. And so far in this chapter, I'm just copying its author. In most modern English translations, the first two words of Ecclesiastes are meaningless, meaningless. But in older versions, that word was translated vanity. And the more liberal Hebrew rendering would be something like vapor or mist. So the book opens with vapor, vapor, everything is vaporous, says the author. See the connection? What about vapor are we supposed to relate to everything else? Mist is gaseous. It's not solid. It's insubstantial, and it disappears in the blink of an eye. It's the opposite of substance. The author spends a large portion of the book making this argument. If you misunderstand God's purpose, you'll miss happiness. Happiness is not found in achievement, vanity, sensuality, celebrity, intellectualism, getting drunk or high, or anything we use to grasp at pleasure or meaning. In fact, God intentionally designed the world in such a way as to frustrate worldly attempts to grasp happiness and meaning. 
God wants us to receive happiness as a sheer gift from Him as we go about ordinary lives of substance. He doesn't want us to forsake our lives chasing happiness, ending up with nothing but fistfuls of mist in the end. The best summary of this that I know is found in these verses, Ecclesiastes 3, verses 10 through 14. I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear or revere Him. God has made any adulterous attempt at happiness turn out to be a disappointing vapor. Solomon says God does it so that men will revere Him. God has laid this on men like a burden. We know that the universe has an eternity to it, and we cannot fathom its complete meaning. We see that everything is beautiful in its time, that our pleasures are abundant but cannot last. We can't hold on to pleasure or youth, and we can't get it at the eternal foundations of meaning, at least not apart from God. Solomon says that accepting these limitations is the key to human meaning and happiness. This burden will either crush or liberate each of us. In Ecclesiastes 2 and 3, Solomon reveals his own journey. He recalls that when he was seeking all the vapors of meaning and pleasure, it resulted in hatred. When he saw that it was all a mist, he said, So I hated life, because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it meaningless, a mist, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun, because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. From Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 17 through 19a and verse 20. Chasing the extraordinary and pleasurable led him to misery and meaningless. Pretty ironic. He hated it. Note what it led him to hate. Life itself and all the things in his life he had worked for. In the midst of his anger, he also said, My heart began to despair. Rage and despair. <laughs> nice. Is that what you're shooting for in life? Then he starts to see the connections between God, happiness, and work itself. He writes in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 24-26, through 26, A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This, too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without Him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases Him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, He gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. In Ecclesiastes 2, verse 10, he had already realized that my heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. It wasn't the accomplishment, but the labor that he enjoyed so much. While he was doing the work, his heart was full of delight. But when he surveyed the meaning of his work, he said it was a vapor, 
and it filled him with hatred and despair. Does that remind anyone of doing the dishes over and over? You can be perfectly happy washing them and making them clean, but what have you accomplished? They're just going to get dirty again in a few hours. You've accomplished nothing in the eternal meaning of the universe. The result has no endurance, and by that measure, no significance. If you think about it long enough, it may make you angry. If you have sensitive emotional taste buds, and you consider the same thing being true of a more demanding task, you may even feel a little tinge of despair with your resentment. This is the, quote, burden God has laid on the human race, end quote. Beauty and pleasure will fade. You can't hold on to them. There is a time for everything, Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 through 8. And nothing in our lives lasts like we want it to. Nothing that isn't rooted in God. There is no toil, no labor for accomplishment or pleasure that will satisfy the fact that God has set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Chapter 3, verse 11b. But what he also sees is that this burden isn't meant to be a curse. It's meant to help us give up trying to seek happiness through worldliness and idolatry. It's all mist and vapor, a chasing after the wind. It just leads to misery, hatred, resentment, and despair. You have to let it go. But how? The answer is to trust God by taking pleasure in what is wholesome and ordinary. It's to show our faith by trusting God in the fading beauty and the temporariness of our accomplishments, taking pleasure in everything included in our toil, an intentionally negative word. Happiness is found by trusting God in the ordinary, eating and drinking and finding satisfaction in all our toil. Solomon says, This too I see is from the hand of God. Chapter 2, verse 24. And this is the gift of God. Chapter 3, verse 13b. In fact, Solomon pushed it even further. Not only does God give happiness to those who trust him, but he also grants the other thing we so obsessively seek, meaning. Solomon was seeking wisdom, real wisdom. He was working overtime for it. In all his toil, he was seeking to wring drops of wisdom from all the experiments of his life. But only after he hit the dead end of anger and despair and looked to God did we see the real path of meaning. Quote, to the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. That's in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 26a. Did you see it? God didn't just give him happiness and pleasure in his toil. He also gives him wisdom and knowledge, the ability to discern real meaning. This principle is found all throughout the Bible. The thing God intentionally frustrates in our independence and self-will, He freely gives us as a blessing when we trust and revere Him, and He does it in the most unlikely way. Solomon accepted his limitedness and turned to God. When he did, he didn't find just himself happy. He found the knowledge and wisdom he was seeking all along. Wisdom and Knowledge the book of Ecclesiastes is full of the wisdom and knowledge we need in order to find joy and satisfaction in the ordinary. It starts with accepting the burden God has put on humans, accepting that He is God and we are not, and letting go of seeking happiness in our worldliness and idolatry. 
we humans have no access to ultimate meaning outside of the ultimate one. However, God does not leave us there. He knows how hard it is for us to trust him in embracing the ordinary. He knows we are atheists at heart, fearing that we really do only live once and that our lives will soon be spent. He knows our fear of missing out. So he instructs us more deeply in the knowledge and wisdom of embracing the ordinary. The more we understand ourselves and how God works, the more we can see that his way is not only just, but good, pleasurable, and meaningful. Remember, God is not against pleasure and meaning. He invented them, but he will not allow us to become apple thieves when he has made us to grow orchards. So, what does it look like to embrace the ordinary? I suggest five essential practices as a taste of the attitudes and practices involved. There are many more, but these will provide hours of reflection, and if you embrace them, they can change your life radically for the better. They will also provide ways to exercise faith consciously in every moment of your life. These practices and attitudes show how to trust God practically within even the worst crises of your life while simultaneously preparing you for them. You cannot grow in spiritual substance without them. Practices for Embracing the Ordinary Most of the confusions of worldliness are rooted in something true. In this case, it's easy to confuse quality with position. Some positions are extraordinary in that only a few can occupy them, and they get more attention. An army can't have 10,000 generals and one soldier. There have to be more students than teachers and more voters than representatives. These distinctions are based on station and position. Stations and positions, by definition, cannot be overly distributed, making some positions more ordinary than others. However, if happiness depends on having an extraordinary position, then most of humanity must be unhappy because there will always be more plumbers and teachers than senators, and there will only ever be one God. Position cannot be the measure for the extraordinary life that we all seek. In spite of these facts, our deepest longing not to be ordinary is a good longing from God. The good way he wants us to be more than ordinary is in the quality of our character. He wants us to embrace the ordinary in our roles and responsibilities, the ordinary of position, while rejecting it passionately in our character, the ordinary of quality. He wants us to be ordinary people with extraordinary quality of character, people of spiritual substance, ordinary but not typical. By this definition, becoming extraordinary isn't a competition. It actually grows best in cooperation. We can't have 10,000 generals and one soldier, but we can have 10,000 excellent soldiers and one great general, which makes for a fiercely capable army. There is no limit on how many women could be great wives, friends, or mothers, even if there is a limit on how many can become CEOs or professional singers. Seen in this light, spiritual substance is the only way to fulfill the longing God has put in our hearts to be something more. There is nothing more extraordinary than being like Jesus in the midst of an ordinary life. The practical application of this is always immediate. Start by asking yourself, with what attitude and quality am I inhabiting this moment right now? Love happens, or doesn't, in real, ordinary contexts. 
Every role, responsibility, rhythm, and repetition of family, friendship, work, and rest is an opportunity and avenue for love. Whatever you're doing, you can do it with the quality and character of Jesus. Every day at work, every trip to the grocery store, every conversation with a child, every time we stay up late with a roommate is a situation for ordinary, non-typical love, which is a genuinely extraordinary thing. The ordinary life is full of drama and meaning because virtually every moment is an opportunity for love or its denial. The first step into this bounty is expressing faith in Jesus by embracing the ordinary nature of life as a gift. Number two, accept limits in your personal rhythms. We've talked about how ordinary life is made up of repetitions in our roles and responsibilities, but God didn't leave it there. A slave has roles, responsibilities, and repetitions. What separates God's gift of the ordinary from oppression? The answer is a rich rhythm of work, rest, worship, and celebration. You can find all of this in the first five books of the Bible. God designed each week to be the standard rhythm of life. One day of rest for every worker, even the lowest slave and livestock, and the responsibility to work productively for six days each week for everyone, even the bosses and owners. Then God sprinkled in celebrations and worship festivals throughout the year, giving rhythms to each full year. He even made every seventh year a year of rest, and every fiftieth year a double year of rest since you would have just rested in the 49th year. God is a worker, and He made us to work. He is creative and productive, and He made us to be creative and productive. But He is no slave driver. He has not only given us the gift of rhythm, but He has also commanded that we embrace His rhythm of roles and responsibilities, so that we do not oppress ourselves out of idolatry or out of a desire to please Him. Living in God's rhythms isn't easy. Rest is ultimately an act of faith, and we should practice it as such. How can a medical student or a restaurant owner afford to take a full day off? His competitors will slaughter him. How can you say no to your kids when their team plays on Sundays during church? In ceasing from our labor, we prove that we mean it when we say we trust that God has wisely ordered the world, that His commandments lead to our good, and that he is a good father who provides for his children, even if it seems like the world will gobble up everything we need while we're sitting on our hands. In our world, saying no to things that unravel God's rhythms for us is painfully difficult. But God has never apologized for asking us to live differently than our neighbors. He wants to show our neighbors something through our difference and to show us something about him. We're supposed to see that God is in charge of our lives. My friend Adam, who is a pastor, said this after he faced God's demand that he find a rhythm of rest in his life. I had trusted God to run the world, but I had not trusted him to run my world. By demanding generosity, called a tithe, God handicaps our money, and by demanding rest, he handicaps our labor to force us to trust that God can make it enough. In the ultra-competitive world of sinful ambition, he holds us back. We have to trust Him to rest, not just from our work, but also from our anxiety and ambition. The kind of people we are matters too much. People who celebrate rest and worship become the kind of people He is pleased to bless. And in fact, they are already blessed by the very things He commands, blessed with rest, celebration, and worship. 
Accepting limits from God and living in His rhythms will make you more productive and more rested. It will focus and relax your mind and allow your heart to hold aspirations without forfeiting contentment. We are meant to be productive people, but not busy people. The noble wife in Proverbs 31 was often up before dawn and went to bed after dark. She is remembered for her entrepreneurship and her arm muscles, among other things, and not her tweezed eyebrows. But godly productivity has boundaries. God is a father, not a tyrant, and he wants to give his children real rest, rest from both toil and anxiety. Remember this promise all your days. In vain you rise up early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. Psalm 127, verse 2. The faithful work of the four R's, roles, rhythms, responsibilities, and repetitions, does not exclude a fifth R, rest. The Sabbath commands in Exodus and Deuteronomy teach us that the Sabbath is about creation and redemption. It frees us from slavery to false gods that demand our work, and it opens the way to creativity. Without rest, we cannot be obedient, and we cannot be free. God is not glorified by presiding over miserable slaves, over a factory of workers who get no break. Our productivity in six parts is meant to match with rest in the seventh part. God has given us a life rhythm. Honor producing and serving over consuming and receiving. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work we must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself when he said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Acts chapter 20, verses 33 through 35. It may seem like rest is more neglected than any of the four R's. But if that was true, at one point in our cultural history, I'm not so sure it is anymore. Overwork is a form of pride and greed. But underwork manifests both laziness, sloth, and envy, wanting the fruit of others' work for yourself. Pride, greed, sloth, and envy are included among the seven deadly sins for a reason. They are common and deadly. The Bible's view of work is just as profound and foreign to our culture as its view of rest. It's fair to say that most people don't love to work. A few people have what they consider their dream job, but they are the exception, not the rule. Some are genetically industrious and can hardly stand still. A few more have learned to find pleasure and pride in their work. But since the fall, humans have generally found Solomon's words about work to be true. It is toil. If we had our way, we would prefer not to work, so long as the money came from somewhere. In fact, most people want to retire as soon as financially possible to enjoy a life of leisure. Regardless of our financial position, that's the human condition. The passage quoted from Acts 20 is part of a farewell address that Paul gave to the elders of the church in the city of Ephesus. In these few lines, he says a lot about work. He emphasizes that he was free of envy and didn't claim any kind of entitlement. He didn't covet anything anyone else had worked for, and he worked hard to provide for himself and anyone working with him. While he clearly taught that ministers should be paid by the ones they serve, he never wanted new believers to think his ministry was for money. 
and he expected his fellow ministers to work too. Instead of receiving pay he deserved for ministry, he showed them that by hard work we must help the weak, because, as Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Acts 20, verse 35. Think about that line again. It is more blessed to give than to receive. That verse is about more than generosity. It's mainly about productivity. Paul says it is by this kind of hard work that we help the weak. Productivity is a blessed thing. Therefore, work is a blessing and unemployment is a curse. When people are unproductive, they are almost always unhappy. Consider, for example, how people often feel like a burden in their final years if they are too frail to make recognizable contributions. Arthur C. Brooks, president of the American Enterprise Institute, has done an enormous amount of research on happiness. As part of this work, he surveyed more than 2,500 research articles on what makes people happy. He found that happiness is highly predictable. In addition to genetics and the kind of circumstances that we control, but which don't have long-term effects on our happiness, it turns out four things within our control have a significant effect on our happiness. One, faith or worldview. Do you have a philosophical or theological framework that makes sense of suffering and explains your existence in time and space? Two, family. Do you have people who love you and share life with you? Number three, community. Do you have two or three authentic friends and have a real relationship of commitment and charity toward others in your community? Four, work. Are your energies employed in some vocation or calling that benefits other people? Do you think what you do matters? It turns out that productivity and service make life better. They fulfill us and support happiness. They keep us strong so we can help the weak. They promote love by allowing us to enrich each other's lives through production and exchange of things we all want and need. This is why work is love and also why love is work. It's also why you don't need to work for a nonprofit organization to do meaningful work. God has given all people the gifts of access to meaningful work. Maids, cooks, mothers and fathers, scholars, CEOs, farmers, golf caddies, sewage workers, city arborists, friends, grandparents, amusement park portrait takers, and sculptors all produce things that enrich the lives of others. Even salesmen who don't actually make anything enrich the lives of both producers and receivers by connecting the two. We need to understand one more important distinction in this arena. There is a difference between work and employment. Employment is productivity traded for a wage. But there are many more ways than employment to work productively. Home maintenance, cooking meals, cleaning bathrooms, raising or watching children, volunteering, gardening, helping people who are having difficulties, mentoring and discipling people, and many other means of productivity are real work. Work is judged first not by its wage, but by whether or not it is productive. Whether it provides for people's needs, enriches the lives of others, or prepares you or others to do so. When God's people value being productive and serving others more than receiving and consuming, our work instantly becomes more meaningful and Monday through Friday are given the dignity they deserve. Furthermore, seeing work in light of Christ will preserve the dignity of people who cannot be employed that find ways to be productive, and it will teach us not to resent helping the weak. 
Rather than wishing someone else would do our work for us, we will become people who are actively looking for ways to serve others. It is a blessed state. However, we can never forget that believing it is more blessed to give than to receive is an act of faith. It cannot be rooted in worldliness and the service of mammon. The goodness of work, even under the curse of toil, Genesis 3, is a distinctly Judeo-Christian idea. It has been partially adopted in many places, but until recently in America, it was actually called the Protestant work ethic. It wasn't called this because Protestants are the only people who work, but because Christians worked out of and preached the belief that work is an act of faith and productivity is part of human dignity. We believe sloth, envy, greed, and pride are deadly and dividing. We believe our own labor should supply the work of our hands and that we should produce enough extra to help the weak. We believe it is a blessing to serve others and produce, and that it is more blessed to be productive and generous than to receive and consume. Number four, cultivate an attitude of thankfulness. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good, and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Psalm 100, verses 1 through 5. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. Thankfulness has always been a secret to happiness and a demand of grace. Think about Daniel, one of the greatest heroes of the Bible. The Bible is not bashful about including its hero's flaws, but it says nothing bad about Daniel. He was a Jewish nobleman, enslaved as a young man, probably genitally mutilated to be a eunuch and forced to live as a slave in a foreign land until his death. Daniel 6 records the king of Babylon issuing an edict that anyone who prayed to anyone but himself for 30 days would be thrown in a den of lions to suffer a horrific death. Daniel responded by praying three times a day to give God thanks. To clarify, Daniel had been abused and enslaved. Prayer was only temporarily banned, and the penalty was death, a bad death. Faced with this reality, Daniel prayed in order to thank God not once, but three times every day. The Apostle Paul tells us that we should give thanks in everything, and Psalm 100 says that gratitude is rooted in knowing that the Lord is God and that we are His. As with love, every moment is a call for thankfulness because responding to God's loving goodness is part of every moment. God deserves our thanks, but we also need to experience thankfulness. Look again at the list of four things that support happiness. Did you notice that consumption didn't make that list? Why? Consumption by itself is a visceral pleasure, so it's by nature momentary. 
such momentary things cannot be stable supports for a state of being like happiness. The same is true of receiving. Receiving and consumption by themselves are pleasures that lead not to happiness, but to more craving. This is one of the reasons why the wrong kinds of charity and parenting can hurt the people who receive them and create envious entitlement, the opposite of thankfulness. Consumption and receiving can only support happiness through thankfulness. Thankfulness takes our pleasure in receiving something beyond the gratification of the object to something greater. This pleasure registers in our minds and hearts as we delight in our relationship with the giver, their favor toward us, and their sacrifice in providing the gift. It delights in the goodness of the giver, creator, or producer of what we enjoy. It leads us to enjoy the gift in a way that honors them and increases the creator's rightful reputation while rejecting the impulse to hoard credit for ourselves. In this, thankfulness can make all pleasure transcend our bare physical senses, combining them with the pleasures of truth, goodness, beauty, dignity, and God's glory. In doing so, thankfulness takes what would typically lead to craving and entitlement and raises it to joy and peace. Only thankfulness can easily combine physical pleasures with the higher abstract pleasures like goodness, truth, and beauty. This doesn't diminish physical pleasure or consumption, but transfigures it into something deeper and more complete. In this way, even physical pleasures can increase our substance and forge character when united with the higher realities through thankfulness. That's why the discipline of thankfulness is not only right, but necessary. Thankfulness, like a plant, has to be cultivated through practice and ritual. If you don't already thank God every day when you pray, be specific. Like Daniel, maybe you should do it three or more times a day. Confront feelings of craving and entitlement with thankfulness. Thank other people for every little grace. Praise God for very simple things. Strive in God's grace to fill your heart continually with an attitude of thankfulness toward God and others. Many happiness consultants and psychologists talk about the benefits of thankfulness. They will tell you it's good for you, and it is. But it is self-defeating to pursue thankfulness for the sake of enhanced gratification. Thankfulness will not bless you if misused as an idol. It will not draw your soul up to greater enjoyment if you try to drag it down to be consumed. Like all things that produce blessings, you have to do it for the right reason. Start with worship. God deserves your thanks in everything. You are not a thankful person compared with all that God has done for you. Continue with faith. Trust God, believe in His great goodness toward you, and give Him the appreciation He deserves in everything. Go on and on in every tiny facet of your life until you really start to feel thankful, like God really has been good to you. Well, this might take a while. It may take weeks, but you'll usually find a strong change in a few days. The whole Bible teaches that when we do the right thing for the right reasons, God freely gives us the blessings He has hidden in righteousness. Thankfulness not only opens us to this blessing, but it gives us eyes to see God's glory and goodness in it, multiplying our pleasure in proportion to our faith. Number 5. Approach the world with fascination not snobbery. Has a kid ever said to you, I'm bored, as though it's your job to entertain him? The reply in our house is, 
boring people get bored. This is the negative version of William Dean Howells saying, The secret of a man who is universally interesting is that he is universally interested. I found this to be true again and again. Worldliness has many unexpected negative effects, and one is that it makes us boring and snobbish. We don't devote any attention to a thing unless it interests us, and very few things capture our interest. A bored snob is one of the most tedious things in creation. This deformity comes from believing that snobbery is a sign of higher knowledge and refinement of taste. We think we're snobs because we're cultured. In fact, our snobbery destroys real culture. John Piper once said that theology is interesting because it explores how God relates to everything in the universe and how everything relates to God. That's a pretty wide swath of interest, and that's the point. Everything in the universe is full of wonder. Everything deserves our fascination. When an atheist says, science is interesting, he's not being too broad, but too narrow. He's quoting the God who has made everything worthy of interest because he has made everything worthy of wonder. Psychologists sometimes say people with attentive deficit disorder, ADD, struggle not with focusing on one thing, but with not paying attention to everything. It's a wonder we don't all suffer from this. Concentration isn't the result of a lack of interesting things. It is either the nearly supernatural ability to block out a flood of heartbreaking wonder, or it is a mark of extreme dullness. Proper concentration has within it the realization that we can't possibly be fascinated as the world is fascinating. We can't spend all our time wondering about all the wonders of the world. Thankfulness leads us to appreciate God's many wonders, and the fascination and wonder that attention yields will create in us a geyser of thankfulness and joyful laughter. In order for us to enjoy the world as we were meant to, rather than being consumed by our own drive to consume and control, we must enter the structure of a new ordinary. The Full Circle did you notice that we started with ordinary, but ended with the joy of wondrous fascination with the whole universe? Embracing ordinary allows us to embrace the rhythms of work, rest, worship, and celebration. It makes us see our productivity and creativity as rooted in God's creation and production. Like God, we can produce, create, and serve, blessing others with life and provision. This leads to thankfulness to the God who provides for us and made us like Him. As this thankfulness grows in us, it will lead us to look more widely at the world. The more we see, the more wonder we will find, and the more fascinated we will become with everything. We will geek out in both the learning and the doing. Everything will be interesting, and our ability to take pleasure in things will expand infinitely. This isn't just about happiness. It's also about the substance that can come only through real wisdom and knowledge. As Solomon said to those willing to believe God and please Him, He freely gives wisdom and knowledge. And it's a very special kind of knowledge. It's the kind of knowledge that makes us godly as it makes us fascinated, thankful, and joyful. Consider how many secrets of truth, joy, wisdom, and knowledge God has hidden in embracing the ordinary. Ordinary life is the, quote, burden. Ecclesiastes, God has laid upon us, 
Yet this burden is God's way of leading us into rest, reality, dignity, productivity, love, thankfulness, deepened and constant pleasure, stable happiness, fascination at everything, and wonder toward God. This is the dynamic of blessing, and it starts with trusting God who is willing to burden you in order to bless and forge you. In the last three chapters, we'll take a deeper look at three other elements of becoming people who have the mind of Christ, keep in step with the Spirit, flourish in a life of virtuous freedom, and overflow with self-sacrificial love.